0: good afternoon everyone not too long ago i spoke on the subject of christ dwelling in us today i want to speak on the same subject but from a somewhat different approach and angle scripture teaches that the resurrected saints will share in the glory of christ As it says in Romans chapter 8, verses 16 and 17, We are God's children, and if children, then also heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if, in reality, we share his sufferings so that we may share his glory too. So we are destined to be heirs with Christ and to share his glory. What does that mean? What does it mean to share in the glory of Jesus Christ? The glory of God signifies His divine splendor, the honor and majesty of His person, and the showing forth of His attributes. The glorified saints were told in Second Peter, chapter one, and verse four, "Will share in the divine nature." We will share in the divine nature of God. We will receive the gift of eternal life. Now, humanly, our lives are quite temporary. The Bible compares them to grass and even to a vapor, as it says in James 4 and verse 14, that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. And from God's perspective, that's how our lives appear as the flowers of the field bloom for a short time and then die, disappear, vapor that appears for a short time and vanishes away. But the promise that we have, that we have the opportunity that we have available to us is to be given eternal life. William Barclay in his book, New Testament Words, discusses in, at length the concept of eternal life as it's described in the New Testament. And he says this word ionios or eternal, Greek word ionios means eternal, or it can mean that, is the word of eternity in contrast with time of deity in contrast with humanity. And therefore, eternal life is nothing less than the life of God Himself. When when we're told that we will receive eternal life, we're being told that we will receive God's life because His life is eternal life. And He will grant us that life. Now, now, Eternal life is without end without beginning and without end there's there's never been a point in time if you want to put it in those terms where God has not existed where he has not lived he He existed prior to the universe itself existing and really. As far as human beings are concerned, that's when time began, because we count time essentially by the motions of the universe. Now, God may count time in a somewhat, somewhat different way but because He's eternal. But He was there when time itself began, as, as we count time. And when this universe is no longer in existence, God will still exist. And we are told that we can share that life with God, never-ending self-inherent life as children in His kingdom. But not only is eternal life quantitatively different from mere human existence, it is also qualitatively different and superior in every respect to our temporary human existence with all of its evils and suffering and vulnerability. We're told that the saints living eternally will be experiencing sublime joy and peace it says in Jude 24, they will be in the presence of His glory with exceeding joy. David wrote in Psalm 16, verse 11, In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now, some have ridiculed the idea of our attaining The likeness of God, even though the Bible clearly and plainly teaches that we will share in the divine nature, as children in God's kingdom, fully children in the same sense that our children share our nature. By somehow implying that God is so far superior to us that we could never be like Him, And the fact is, we will, in fact, we will be subject to the Father and Jesus Christ for eternity. The fact that we share their nature does in no way detract from the supremacy of God in terms of His government over His creation and the fact that He will be in the driver's seat, so to speak, for all eternity. Notice in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 where it's discussing the resurrection and our destiny. It says here in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 24, Then comes the end when he, that is Christ, delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and all power. In other words, what this is talking about is when Christ is defeated, all of his enemies has put down all enemies. As it goes on to say in verse 35, For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. This is a reference to the fact that once God's plan for mankind is consummated, there will be no more death. All who are remain in that kingdom will never die. Verse 27, it says, For he has put all things under his feet, but when he says all things are put under him, that is, under Christ, notice all things will be put under Christ. He will be supreme, reign supreme over everything and everyone. It is evident that He who put all things under him is accepted. In other words, the only person who will not be under Christ's authority is God the Father himself. Now, when all things are made subject to him, notice that everything, everyone will be subject to God the Father. Then the Son himself will also be subject to him. Now the fact that jesus christ is god and a member of the godhead does not mean that christ is not subject to anyone because he is subject to the father and even though in certain respects they're equal in other respects they're unequal because even christ said the father is greater than i and jesus christ subjected himself and submitted himself to the Father and will continue to do so for eternity. And if we are to be in God's kingdom, we must show God, we must demonstrate to God that we too are willing to submit ourselves to Him and to remain in subjection to Him. If we cannot demonstrate that to God, it's unlikely that we will be in His kingdom. In fact, we won't be there. Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him. Notice that God may be all in all. God will be all and God will be in all. In other words, everyone who is left of the human family, it says, will be, in a sense, God. God may be all and in all, but we will nevertheless be subject to the Father's authority and to the the authority of Jesus Christ, who alone has authority over everything and everyone except the Father himself. He is second in authority only to the Father. But the glorified saints will share God's attributes. We will even share His power in certain respects. Not that we will be the same in terms of authority, but we will have authority. And we will have power. Power that we can hardly even imagine now. We will share in the honor and splendor of God and, and His brilliance. Notice what it tells us over in Daniel chapter 12, in verse 3. Daniel 12, verse 3. This is speaking of the, those who are resurrected. In verse 3 it says, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the air shall awake, in verse 2, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So there will be individuals who will be resurrected. Everyone will be resurrected. Ultimately, everyone who has lived will live again in the resurrection at some point. And some will be resurrected to eternal life, but some will be resurrected to shame and contempt. And, And then we'll be punished with the punishment reserved for those who reject God and are unwilling to meet his terms, to receive eternal life. goes on to say in verse 3, Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Now, the brightness of the firmament, the firmament is, firmament means just space. And in this case, it's talking about the sky. And when the sun rises on the horizon and then climbs into the sky, you have... Light becomes bright. Instead of the darkness of night, you have brightness. And you can't really even look into the face of the sun directly without it harming your eyes because of its brilliance. And if you stare at the sun very long, directly stare at the sun, you'll soon go blind. Because of the power of the, the light and that gives you an idea of how the saints who are resurrected will appear in their glorified state. It says they will shine like the stars forever and ever. The sun is a star. And there are literally trillions of stars in the universe, many trillions. Nobody knows for sure how many but except God, but far more than we can count, although God has counted them, and he knows exactly how many there are. But And those stars shine with brilliance, like the sun. The only reason the sun appears brighter is because it's much closer to us than any other star. There's some stars, many stars that are even brighter than the sun, and some not quite as bright as the sun. But that gives you an idea of how the glorified saints will appear. Over in Philippians 3 in verse 21. Well, let's go back to verse 20 to pick up the context. It says, Our citizenship is in heaven from which we Also, eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to His glorious body. Notice that we are to be given bodies that will be conformed to the glorious body of Jesus Christ, that is, the body with which Jesus Christ was resurrected. Not a flesh and blood body, limited and weak, but a glorious, powerful body. And this, by the way, shows us that God does indeed have a body and a form in a sense. And we, too, as glorified saints, will have bodies, but they won't be glorified bodies according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. The bodies and the faces of the resurrected saints will shine forth with supernatural brilliance, just like that of the resurrected Jesus Christ. Over in Revelation 1, we have a glimpse. This is a symbolic description of Christ, but nevertheless, it gives us an idea of how He might appear if we were able to see Him directly in his, glorify, in his glorified state. And notice in verse 13 of Revelation 1, here John is in vision seeing Jesus Christ, and it says, He saw one like the Son of Man, that's Jesus Christ clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. And actually, the dress here depicts Christ in the garb of, of a high, the, the high priest, which he is. He is our high priest. And it says his head and hair were like, were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. And his feet were like fine brass, as if it, as if refined in a furnace. And his voice the sound of many waters, in other words, the sound of a roaring, massive waterfall. I don't know if you've ever been to the Niagara Falls or some other great waterfall, but if you get close to a waterfall that that of that uh, magnitude, if you get close to it. There's such a roar from the falling water that it drowns out just about any other sound. You have to shout to try to make yourself heard above the roaring sound of the waterfall. And so you can imagine someone's voice who has that kind of power. And it says in verse 16, His countenance... His face was like the sun shining in its strength. It's like the sun shining in its strength. And so, this is how Christ would appear if we were able to see Him. And this is similar to how we will appear, having been glory, having been given glorious bodies like that of Jesus Christ. David wrote in Psalm 17, verse 15, As for me, I will see your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awaken your likeness. We will be like Christ. We will appear like Christ. We will look like him in terms of our general form and the kind of bodies that we have and the kind of brilliance that will emanate from those bodies. John wrote in First John 3 and verse 2, We know that when God is revealed, we shall be like Him. Actually, he said, when, when we, know, we know that when He, meaning God, is revealed, we shall be like Him. So the destiny of one who is a true Christian, if we remain faithful, is to become like God, sharing God's glory for all eternity this is the opportunity that we have before us but what assurance do we have that this magnificent astounding purpose will be fulfilled in us as individuals what's the basis for our hope of glory in god's kingdom paul wrote in colossians chapter 1 beginning with verse 26 the mystery which has been hidden hidden from ages and from generations now has been revealed to His saints. To them God will to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery. Now, the word mystery, as it's used in the Bible, means knowledge that is known to a select group. And the fact is that this mystery has been openly proclaimed it is written in the bible the bible has been circulated all over the world many many millions hundreds of millions of copies of the bible have been distributed telling in detail about this mystery and yet it is still a mystery to the world because they don't believe its message But to those who believe, who are ready to believe the gospel, who are ready to submit themselves to God and to receive God's Spirit, then this mystery becomes something that they have an understanding about. And it says, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the gentiles now most gentiles down through history have really not had much knowledge at all of the true god very little knowledge of the true god and even the israelites were pretty much ignorant for the most part of of the true god until god delivered them out of egypt and revealed himself to them and gave them uh, gave them instructions through Moses but even then they rebelled against God and pretty much remained ignorant of God for for the most part later on however when Jesus Christ came and was crucified he specifically now actually some of the The prophets of the Old Testament were sent to Gentile nations to preach to them. But Jesus Christ specifically commissioned certain apostles to teach the Gentiles and even commanded the original twelve to take that message to all nations. It was not uh, a message limited only to the people of Israel, but it was for all mankind. And what was that mystery? the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, because the world has refused to believe God, as I said, they have remained ignorant, not only of the destiny, which is, which god has in mind for mankind but also how to achieve that purpose notice proverbs chapter 1 proverbs 1 and verse 7 it says the fear of the eternal is the beginning of knowledge But fools despise wisdom and instruction. To to come to fear God is the beginning of knowledge, especially spiritual knowledge. And those who refuse to submit to God, who do not fear God, are going to remain in spiritual blindness ignorance, relatively speaking, because they despise wisdom instruction. They don't, they will not receive it. They refuse it. They reject it. If you reject knowledge, if you reject truth, what's left? Ignorance and falsehoods and lies. Blindness. But notice in verse 23 it says, Turn up my rebuke. In other words, repent. When you hear God's rebuke, Surely I will pour out my spirit on you. I will make my words known to you. So once a person begins to listen to God and to turn away from sin, to repent, and turn to God in repentance, then God grants his spirit and spirit with that spiritual knowledge. And as long as we continue in that path of repentance and the fear of God, then we can grow in spiritual understanding. God will reveal more and more of his knowledge to us. We will become more aware of the meaning of God's word and of his purpose plan and how that purpose and plan can be fulfilled in us. So, in that sense, that kind of knowledge is is reserved for those who are chosen through believing the gospel and repenting. Now, many are called, we're told. Many have have had that opportunity and even now do have that opportunity, but most reject it, must refuse it. But those who choose to repent can come to an understanding of what, why they were created, what their purpose is, and how to fulfill it. Now, one's destiny as a true Christian and the means of its accomplishment is reflected in the phrase, Christ in you, the hope of glory. As we've seen, the destiny of a Christian, is to be glorified with God. But that can only be accomplished if Jesus Christ is living in us through His Spirit. Now, if Christ is living in us, and as long as Christ continues to live in us, in any one of us, then we have a real hope, not only hope, but promise of being glorified with God. Hope of eternal life. But to receive the Holy Spirit, one must surrender to God's will, as we've seen. We must turn at God's reproof. We must believe the gospel. We must believe God's word, that is what the gospel is. And genuinely repent of sin, and begin striving diligently to obey God. Notice what Jesus said in Mark chapter 1. In Mark 1 and verse 15, Jesus began His public ministry, and as it says in verse 14, He came preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. These are the requirements for conversion and receiving God's Spirit. Believing the gospel and repenting. Over in Acts chapter 2, Paul, or Peter, and the other apostles had preached to a crowd on the day of Pentecost after Christ's crucifixion and resurrection and Acts, In Acts 2 and verse 38, after they had preached a message to a crowd in the temple, many were cut to the heart by what they had heard. They were convicted by the words that they had heard, and they asked what what they should do. And notice what Peter said. In verse 38, he said, repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is available only to those who repent. And implied in that is believing the message that would lead one to repentance, Notice what we find in Acts 5 and verse 32. Acts 5 and verse 32. Again, Peter was speaking here and they had been forbidden by the religious leaders among the Jews to preach Christ. And Peter said in verse 29, We ought to obey God rather than men. And this is, by the way, an important principle you need to keep in mind. Always put God's will first. And men in authority often oppose what God would have us do. We must yield to God and not fear what men can do if what they want us to do is contrary to God's will. We must fear God. Obey Him. And they had crucified Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as Peter told them. But in verse 31, God is exalted to His right hand, that same one that they had crucified, to be Prince and Savior, to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. And he said we are witnesses to these things and so also is the Holy Spirit whom or which as it should be God has given to those who obey him. Notice God gives the Holy Spirit to those who obey. And repentance means you turn from your sins and you start obeying God. And then you receive the Holy Spirit. That's usually the way it works. Now there are a few instances where people received the Holy Spirit under special circumstances for a particular purpose like John the Baptist for example was had the Holy Spirit from the womb because God had a special particular purpose in mind for him but nevertheless he still had to remain submissive to God to retain God's spirit If if he had rebelled against God and Decided he was going to reject God, God would have figured out a, a different way to get accomplished what he needed to be done. God, God's Spirit is given to those who repent and who obey him. Now, Hopefully, those listening to this sermon have believed the true gospel, have repented, and received the Holy Spirit. Perhaps not all of them have, but many who perhaps hear this message will be in that category of people who have believed the gospel and repented and received the Holy Spirit. And anyone listening can be in that position if they're willing to do that. But once you receive God's Spirit, once Christ is abiding in you through His Spirit, what can you do to assure that He will continue to abide in you, to dwell in you to the end, so that the hope that you uh, presently have is fulfilled? Well, there are a number of things you can do, several things, actually. But in this sermon, I want to focus on two specific things that you can do to assure that your hope of glory is fulfilled, that Jesus Christ will continue to dwell in you. Now, there are conditions, as we've seen, to dwelling in a person we've seen that it requires repentance and it requires obedience now some have not just some many would say that that kind of a message is preaching salvation by works that uh, it is a works based a message that is contrary to Scripture And we need to clearly understand that works are necessary for salvation. But we, through our own efforts, cannot ever qualify ourselves for salvation. We cannot, through our own efforts, qualify ourselves for salvation. Only God can qualify us for salvation. Notice in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 12, Paul wrote that he was, we are to give thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. Notice the Father has qualified us. We haven't qualified ourselves, the Father qualifies us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints and the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. Yes, in a, in a, in a limited sense, we have already been transferred into God's kingdom. That, that is, we are we are under His direct rule and, and governance. And now God's kingdom has not been fully established as yet on the earth. But as far as we are concerned, we are living under God's authority and his rule. And if we are truly converted. And it goes on to say, in whom we have redemption through the blood, the forgiveness of sins. We have been redeemed. From death, through the blood of Jesus Christ, our sins have been forgiven. And so we have been qualified to be partakers of the inheritance by the Father. Salvation is a gift. And it's a gift which we could never earn, regardless of how much effort we might expend. You can never earn salvation. Because it is a gift from God. But this is where many have jumped the track. Thinking because it is a gift that nothing is required of us. And that is a lie. It does require effort to fulfill our part of the covenant with God. It requires a great deal of effort. It requires an exercise of our own will. It requires determination. It requires sacrifice. Sacrificing our time. Sacrificing perhaps in other ways. As Paul wrote to Timothy, First Timothy chapter 6, verse 12, he said we must fight the good fight of faith. Living by faith is in a sense, being in a fight. We're fighting our own nature. We're fighting against the world. We're fighting against Satan. We're fighting against our lusts. And that takes a great deal of effort. It takes work. He told Timothy, lay hold on eternal life. Lay hold on it. And that requires effort. We must lay hold. We must grasp it and hang on to it. And if we don't put that effort forth, we're not willing to put out the effort necessary to lay hold on eternal life, to fight the good fight of faith, then we will become subject to sin and deception. Now, we cannot qualify ourselves for salvation, but we can disqualify ourselves for salvation through failing to continue down the right path through... An exercise of will and determination. Now we we still will need God's help. We need God's Spirit to help us. But God is God's Spirit is not going to do it alone without our effort. It requires our effort coupled with the power of God's Spirit working in us for us to continue in the path of faith and if we don't make that effort we will disqualify ourselves for the inheritance that we could otherwise receive notice in second corinthians chapter 13 second corinthians chapter 13 verse 5 paul said examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you are disqualified? Unless you are disqualified. So, see, we can be, be, become disqualified. And we need to constantly examine ourselves to see whether we are in the faith testing ourselves, and God is testing us too. And we do need to take a look at ourselves and critically see how our conduct stacks up with what God would have us do. And where we find ourselves falling short, we need to repent. If we don't do that, we can become disqualified. Disqualified. In Titus 1, Titus 1 and verse 16, Paul wrote to Titus and to us of those who had become spiritually defiled. And it says, they profess to know God. Yes they profess to know God but in works they deny him Yes you one of the you, you can profess to know God and make a confession with your mouth but if your works are not in accordance with what you profess then you are denying God no matter what you're saying, no matter what you're saying with your lips. It says they profess to know God, but in works they deny Him. Being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. See, if we are denying God in our works, what we profess really is may be just self-deception. We become disqualified if we are not doing works that are consistent with what we profess to believe. In chapter 2 and verse 11, Paul actually writes a lot about works in this book of Titus, this letter. In chapter 2 and verse 11, he said the grace of God that Bring salvation, has appeared to all men. Notice it says, The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. In other words, nobody really has an excuse. Now God is merciful, but this message, at various times, has gone out to all mankind. Appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this age, in the, in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us that He might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for Himself His own special people. Notice we become part of God's special people only when we have been purified and cleansed. Zealous for good works. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. In chapter 3 and verse 8, he wrote, This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly. Constantly that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. So, even though we don't earn salvation through our works, there must be works for us to remain under grace. For Christ to dwell in us, our works have to be consistent with what God wants us to do. Now, the two tools that I want to discuss in particular today to help us remain hopeful of God's salvation as Christ dwells in us are Bible study and obedience. The Jewish rabbis at the time of Christ taught, as Alfred Adersheim pointed out in his book about the life of Jesus, the life of times of Jesus the Messiah. He wrote about one of their teachings, and this is how it's stated. It is in the power of each holy to overcome sin and to gain life by study and good works. This was a teaching among the Pharisees at the time that A person could gain eternal life through his own efforts alone by studying good works. Now, as we've seen, we cannot qualify ourselves no matter how much study we did, no matter how many good works. Without God's Spirit, all the study and good works in the world are worthless as far as eternal salvation is concerned but at the same time if one will not hear God's word and does not obey it, Christ will not be dwelling in him study and good works are essential for salvation because those are conditions to Christ dwelling in us So, if Christ is to dwell in you, then you must study God's Word diligently. We really ought to be studying God's Word every day. We ought to be consistent in it. I've, from time to time, talked to people in the church who said they were in the church, who appeared to be in the church. who have gone for weeks and months with little or no Bible study. And... If you hope to have eternal life, that's a, uh, that's a good way to fail, fail to fulfill your destiny. Now, salvation is not just for brilliant Bible scholars. In fact, there have been a number of brilliant Bible scholars who aren't even converted, who don't really even believe God's word, even though they spend their whole spend their whole life studying it. You don't have to be a brilliant biblical scholar to be a Christian, but you do need to read God's Word and study it and know what's in it and strive to obey it. Most of what God wants us to know is plain enough to anyone who is willing to believe God's Word and act on it. And the more we show our willingness to act on what we know, the more will be revealed to us. And it is revealed to us. As we study God's Word, it's not revealed to us like God just opening the top of our head somehow and pouring in knowledge without any effort on our part. It requires effort for us to be growing in spiritual knowledge. It also requires the right approach a right attitude. notice what it says in Psalm 111 and verse 10 the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. again this principle of fearing God this is the beginning of knowledge to reverence God to submit to God and it says a good understanding of all those who do his commandments. Notice, if you want to have spiritual understanding, you must do the commandments. You must yield to God's Word and start implementing it. And as you yield to it, then you will begin to understand more and more as you obey God. Most people, actually most people even that call themselves Christians, know little or nothing, for example, of the Sabbath. They may know that God commanded the seventh day to be kept as the Sabbath, but if they don't keep it, they are not going to understand why, or at least not have very much understanding of why God commanded that day to be kept, or its meaning and significance, or how to keep it properly. they would know even less generally about the annual festivals because they don't keep them. And you might even in a casual conversation mention the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Trumpets or the Feast of Atonement to a, a Sunday churchgoer and they in many cases would, would not even have a clue as to what you're talking about. Much less understand their significance because they don't keep those festivals. They keep Christmas. They keep Easter. But they don't keep the Sabbaths that God commanded to be kept, which reveal God's plan, and purpose, and how He's working it out. So they have little or no understanding of those things. In Proverbs 15 Proverbs 15 and verse 32. It says, He who disdains instruction despises his own soul. But he who heeds rebuke gets understanding. He who heeds rebuke. In other words, repents. When he reads something in God's Word, like You know, don't worship idols, don't commit adultery, don't lie, don't steal, don't murder, don't covet, and so forth. And he sees that he's been doing these things and he begins to take seriously what God says, decides he's going to change. Then he can begin to grow in understanding. God will begin to grant him his spirit, spiritual guidance. And he will begin to develop more and more understanding. And the more, and this is something we must continue to do. No matter how long one has been in the church, no matter how long one has been converted, he must continue to heed rebuke. At the point, we ever reach the point where we are no longer to be willing to, to heed rebuke, then we're on slippery ground. We will start losing ground spiritually. When we can no longer be rebuked by God's word. And there are individuals who have perhaps been converted for many years who get to the point where they're no longer willing to be corrected by God's word for whatever reason. We can, any of us can get into that state of mind if we're not careful. So we need to. Study God's Word, and we need to accept the rebuke that comes with that study because God's Word will convict us if we're actually taking it seriously. It will convict us of things that we need to change and repent of. It will show us where we're wrong. Paul compared it to a mirror. Where you're looking into a mirror, and and it shows you where all your warts and your flaws are, what you need to change and correct. James also used a similar analogy. Now, Bible study, as I mentioned, of itself, does not necessarily produce true spirituality. as, As I said, there are people who've spent their whole lives, their profession has been studying the Bible, but they're not converted. But studying the Bible can produce and will produce if we're doing it properly, spiritual literacy. It can provide necessary food for nurturing the spirit. The Bible is likened, God's word is likened to bread, to food, spiritual food. And when Jesus said to the Jews, if you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, he was talking about partaking of his spirit through studying God's word. God's word is spirit, he said. And so when we study God's word properly and we are rebuked by it, we're drinking in of God's spirit. We're drinking in of Christ. We're eating, so to speak, of his flesh in a spiritual sense. The scriptures are a who, what, how, and why book for the works of God. They're an instruction manual for Christians showing us how to be Christians. Now, the right kind of Bible study then can make a difference in our salvation or even whether we wind up ultimately having salvation. James wrote, the implanted word is able to save your souls. The implanted word is able to to save your souls. And God communicates to us His will through the Scriptures. Jesus Christ said that, or Paul wrote that, that Jesus Christ, having loved the church and given Himself for it, in Ephesians 5 and verse 26, went on to say that He might sanctify it and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. Washing of water by the word. When you study God's word and you let it, let it sink in and you take it, you consider it. You let it convict you and you let it lead you to repentance. That's like taking a bath spiritually. Cleansing yourself of the dirt and the spiritual defilement. And it is our nature to gravitate towards sin. It's it's in our fleshly nature. There's the law of sin, as Paul put it, that draws us towards sin like a magnet is drawn to iron, or iron is drawn to a magnet. It's it's the law of of our nature called the law of sin. Just like gravity pulls us to the earth, our nature pulls us towards sin. We have to resist it, and we have to overcome it, and we will be defiled by it, and we have to be washed and cleansed of it. We can do that through proper Bible study. By the way, I want to comment on studying the Bible because I believe some people have a wrong idea of what Bible study is. Some people limit their study to reading books about the Bible or perhaps reading booklets or articles written by somebody about what the Bible says. But they don't actually open the Bible and read it for themselves. Now, this sermon that I'm giving today has actually been written in an article that's been published on our church's website. You may have read it. And if you haven't, I would encourage you to read it. And if you have, I would encourage you to read it again sometime. But when you read it, Take time to look up the scriptures. Don't just read over the, the material and not look up the scriptures. Much of the meat of the article is in the scriptures that are quoted. They show what's behind the comments that are made. When you read articles or literature about the Bible, look and see what the Bible itself says. But then... Not only that, you shouldn't just read articles and booklets about the Bible. You need to get out your Bible and study it firsthand. You need to to get out your Bible and read it and study various chapters and find out what the Bible says firsthand. How are you going to know if you're even being told the truth if you don't know what the Bible says? And actually, you may not be being told the truth about many things. Just because somebody claims to be a minister doesn't mean he's always telling the truth. Doesn't necessarily mean he's always lying either, but he could be lying, or he could be just plain mistaken. He may be lying deliberately or may be lying because he doesn't really know any better. Either way, you need to know what the truth is. The only way you can find out is get your nose in the Bible. Read it for yourself. Now, you can be deceived, too, if you carelessly assume things and you get only part of the picture and part of the story and think you know something that the Bible says that doesn't really say. And that's often a problem, too. People read something and jump to conclusions without considering all the evidence. That's why you need to read the entire Bible. and Be careful about jumping to conclusions. And... Compare scriptures with scripture. The best commentary on scripture is scripture. And be careful that you don't just jump to conclusions based on I- an isolated statement here or there somewhere else, because that's often how people are deceived by not getting the whole picture, not getting all the information in the proper context, not comparing scriptures with scripture. And then they jumped to wrong conclusions, utterly false conclusions, because they only got part of the information. And Satan quotes Scripture, you know. Satan quoted Scripture to Christ. Satan's ministers can quote Scripture very well, quite often. And they may often know more about certain things the Bible says than you do. If you haven't really been doing your homework, if you have been doing your homework, that probably won't be the case. But get out your Bible and read it and study it. Learn to use Bible helps properly. Don't just believe everything you read in them either. Sometimes they're wrong as well. And, and it does take diligence. And, and also pray. When you study, ask God for understanding. And you should do that, if not daily, very often. Ask God to give you understanding. We, when you find something in the Bible that is difficult to understand, go to God and ask God to give you an understanding of what that verse or that subject means I've actually been puzzled about certain things at times and gone for years asking God to help me understand a particular matter and eventually that understanding has come not just because of some idea made up my head, but because I finally was able to discern what the meaning of God's Word was, where there might have been a difficulty in understanding. Not that I understand everything. There's a lot I don't know. There's a lot any of us do, does not know, and we will never know any, everything in this lifetime. There will always be more to learn and we should be learning more every day. But you can't be like Christ if you don't know what Christ is like. So one of the things you need to be looking at as you study, study the scriptures is try to find out what God is like. What is his character like? How does he think? Because Christians are supposed to be like Christ. Where supposed to imitate Christ. We're supposed to follow His thinking, His teachings. We're supposed to follow His example. And so you can't do that if you don't know what Christ was like, and is like, what God is like. Get to know God. You do that through studying the Bible and applying God's Word. How can you have genuine faith and belief in God if you don't know what God believes, what He teaches, what He stands for. You can't follow Christ's teachings if you don't know what they are. You can't obey God if you don't know what He requires. So, study God's Word to learn who He is, what He is like, what He is doing for you and with you, and what He wants you to do. The fact is, Jesus Christ will live in you only if His words live in you. As I mentioned earlier, Jesus said in John 6, and verse 63, The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. The words, the words recorded in God's Word, the Bible. And Jesus said in John 8, and verse 31, If you abide in My Word... You are my disciples indeed, or truly, if you abide in my word. You are my disciples, truly. On the uh, the other hand, then, if we're not abiding in God's word, then we're not really his disciples. He went on to say, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. If you abide in Christ's word, then you will come to know the truth. Unless you decide to start denying the truth and decide you want to start lying instead of telling the truth. And there are people who have decided to do that. Ministers. Many ministers who prefer telling lies to telling the truth. People who would much rather hear lies than hear the truth most people frankly don't want to hear the truth it's the last thing they want to be told especially the truth of God's Word they'd rather be lied to the truth really has never been a very popular message and it's certainly not popular today nevertheless if we want to be in God's kingdom we have to abide in Christ's Word and we will increasingly, know the truth. the, The more we know, the more free we become because God's truth is a liberating message even though it has its requirements. Notice in John 15, verse 7. John 15, verse 7. If you abide in me, And my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. Notice how abiding in Christ is equated with his words abiding in us. And if we abide in Christ, he abides in us, vice versa. And it is through his words abiding in us that he lives in us and dwells in us through the power of his Spirit they go hand in hand. God's spirit is the spirit of truth. It is the source of God's word. God's word was written as as God's spirit moved men to speak it and to write it. So, study God's word with the view of making God's word part of you. The guide to your thoughts, to your words, to your deeds. Use it as a guidebook on how to live your life. How to conduct yourself. What to think. How to behave yourself. That's what it is. It's what it's intended to be. Now the other means of making sure that Christ will continue to dwell in you that I want to discuss this afternoon is goes hand in glove with what we've been talking about. And that is obey God's commandments. And the reason we want to emphasize this is because many who claim to be Christian stumble at God's commandments. Really, that's what Israel stumbled at. And it's what mankind has been stumbling at ever since the Garden of Eden. Many who claim to be Christian, many who claim to be ministers of Christ, think God's law is done away with teach that God's law is done away with. Or, they might think that they can selectively obey God, they can keep commandments they like, but reject commandments they don't like. And so, there, I heard a minister, for example, one time, some time ago, it's been many years ago, give a sermon about the Ten Commandments. As, as though they were to be taken seriously. And much of what he said was true. There were certain things he omitted, but when he got to the fourth commandment, he talked about how the Sabbath should be kept, but then, then he wound up by saying, and, and we, we Christians, we keep Sunday. Keep Sunday. Actually, they don't keep Sunday. They don't keep any day, really, most of them. They don't even keep sunday but they claim to to keep sunday but that's not the day god said to keep holy is the sabbath he said the seventh day of the week and we know which day the seventh day is you know even the even the people that keep sunday the bible scholars none of them claim that sunday is the seventh day of the week i've never never ever read in a commentary that sunday is the seventh day of the week some people have asked me from time to time, how do we know when the Sabbath is? Well, go to your Sunday-keeping pastor. He knows, he knows which day is the seventh day of the week because they call Sunday the first day of the week. And if there are seven days in the week, that makes Saturday the seventh day of the week. <laughs> that's, that's not an excuse. The Jews have kept the Sabbath for thousands of years. They know when it is. And they know which day is the seventh day and so do even the Sunday keepers. That is, the ones who are aware. So the idea that we just don't know when the Sabbath is so we can't keep it is hogwash. The only question is, are you going to do what God said to do or not? And if he says keep the seventh day of the week holy, that's the day we're to keep holy. But we can't just uh, selectively obey God's commandments and decide we'll throw out certain ones and keep other ones. Now, it is true that there were certain ceremonial laws that were, in effect, under the Levitical priesthood that are no longer required to be literally kept. But all of that is defined and outlined in the Scriptures themselves, not something that we just make up our own ideas about because the Bible tells us what those laws are that are not required to be kept literally and it is very clear about other laws that we must keep including the Sabbath. The Bible says in 2 John 6 and 7 this is love that we walk according to His commandments. This is love. Now people talk about Love, loving Jesus. Talk about love as Christians are supposed to love people, but they don't have to obey the commandments. The Bible says love is obeying the commandments because the commandments tell us how to love God and how to love our neighbor. John wrote, This is love that we walk according to His commandments. This is the commandment that, as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it, for many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Notice what John said here: He said, Many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Now, Notice that love is walking in the Father's commandments. And God is love, we're told in 1 John 4 and verse 8. That is, love is the epitome of God's nature and His character. And the commandments of God give us a practical definition of God's way of love. Jesus said the first and the great commandment is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind second greatest commandment is you shall love your neighbors yourself. He said all the laws hangs on these commandments or are summed up in these two commandments. You can find that in Matthew chapter 22. Jesus said in John 14 verse 15, If you love me, keep my commandments. Love toward God is expressed through spiritually motivated obedience to his commandments. In many places in the Bible we find keeping the commandments directly associated with loving God. Love is the motive force behind God's law. And so love should be our motive for obedience. When we think about loving God, we need to think, how do we express that love for God that we ought to have? We express it by obeying God. Now, we read in Second John 6 and 7 that those who do not confess Jesus Christ coming in flesh are deceivers and anti Anti means to be against or in pl- putting something in place of something else. That's the meaning of the Greek prefix, anti. Against or in place of. And so antichrist means against Christ or putting something else in the place of Christ. And both of those things are commonly done. Being against Christ and trying to put something else in Christ's place. Many men are blasphemers and try to set themselves up and claim people's affections as though they were Christ. Claim people's loyalties as though they were Christ. And require people to give obeisance to them instead of to God and to Christ. Claiming titles that belong only to Christ. They are antichrists. They are against Christ. But what does it mean those who do not confess Jesus Christ coming in flesh deceivers and antichrists. Does that mean that Only those people who say Jesus didn't actually come in the flesh are are deceivers and antichrists. The Greek word translated confess is homologo. And this word means much more than just an empty statement of belief, an empty confession. We already read where people profess to know God, but in works they deny Him. Just saying you believe in Christ, saying that you believe Jesus was the Son of God does not make one a real Christian. As is pointed out in Vine's Expository Dictionary under the word confess, as it explains the Greek, the meaning of the Greek word homologo, this word carries the since, as it says there in the Vines Expository Dictionary of, and I'm quoting here, being identified in thought or language. Being identified in thought or language. Homologo literally means that the word actually, the literal meaning of it is to same thing, to think the same as by the concept of thought as eternal speech, internal speech, or to same speak, to speak the same is. To think the same as to speak the same is. So to confess Christ does not just mean that you say you believe Jesus was God's Son. It means to come to think like Christ thinks, to speak as Christ would speak, to and by implication to act as Christ would act. So, one who is a genuine Christian, as we see in other scriptures, will have God's word abiding in him. Christ's word, his teachings. He will be imitating Christ. He will be speaking the same things that Christ spoke. Teaching faithfully what Christ taught. The Greek word for coming, in this passage of scripture, 2 John 6 and 7, are in the form of the present participle. Now, this is important because the present participle, in this instance, implies present and continuing action. It has nothing to do with confessing that Christ was the Son of God as a human being. The emphasis is on the present. As the Greek scholar A.T. Robertson notes, the sense of the phrase is that of, as he put it, Treating the incarnation, the indwelling of Christ, as a continuing fact. A continuing fact. The meaning is that deceivers are not now and continually thinking the same, speaking the same as Jesus Christ, who is right now and continually coming in the flesh. The flesh being the flesh of Christians. Through the indwelling of Jesus Christ through his spirit. One who is not being empowered and motivated by Jesus Christ is not, cannot be, as long as he remains in that state, a genuine Christian. And if he says he's a Christian, he is saying so in a fraudulent way. The same thought is repeated in a slightly different form in 1 John 4, verses 1 through 3, where it says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test to the spirits whether they are of God. And we need to always do this. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. You don't just believe somebody because he claims to be a minister. You test them. The way you test them is you compare what they're doing, what they're saying, with what Christ said and did. And if you find there's a substantial difference, you're under no obligation whatsoever to follow such people. We're not to follow false prophets and false ministers. Many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. Every spirit that does not confess that Jesus has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. The spirit of Antichrist was already at work in the world at that time, actually has been since the Garden of Eden. But this is a very poor translation I just read from the New King James because it's highly misleading. Some words have been added to the Greek which are not there to distort the meaning. For example, it said that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh twice but that is not in the Greek. The is supplied before the word flesh leaving a narrower implication than John intended. And most importantly, the English translations do not reflect the implication of the perfect participles used in the Greek. The Greek perfect indicative and perfect participle emphasize an existing state. Perfect is sometimes called the long tense because it commonly expresses past action which results with results extending into the present. And often is indistinguishable from the present tense in its force and meaning. So again, in this scripture too, the emphasis is on the present. What Christ is doing now. Not what he did 2,000 years ago. But whether Jesus Christ is dwelling in the flesh now. The flesh of the individual Christian. And if one is not thinking the same and speaking the same as Jesus right now, through Jesus dwelling in the flesh, then that is the spirit of Antichrist. It's a false spirit. The true spirit of God inspires one to think the same thoughts, to speak the same words, and by implication do the same deeds as Jesus dwelling in the flesh, Because the Spirit of God is Jesus dwelling in our flesh. If God's Spirit is dwelling in you, then Jesus is dwelling in you. And the Father is dwelling in you. But the Spirit of Antichrist does not believe, speak, and act according to Jesus Christ dwelling in the flesh. The confession that we read about in John and, and other books of the New Testament is not a mere acknowledge, an acknowledgement of Christ's deity or something of that sort, as many commentaries would have you believe, but it is a conviction, compelling commitment, surrender, and obedience. True Christians think the same, they speak the same, they act the same as Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ through the Spirit of God is dwelling in their flesh. And that is the message of God's Word. As Paul wrote in Galatians 2 and verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. That's what, how one way a, a real Christian is defined, described. No longer you who live, but Christ living in you through His Spirit. True Christians have been justified, that is, deemed free of guilt through the blood of Jesus Christ. But as it tells us in Romans chapter 5, we shall be saved by His life. Christ living in us, living in us, is the key to salvation and eternal life. Not just the fact that Christ died, but the fact that Jesus Christ lives, and He lives in us. And that is absolutely essential. salvation for christ to be living in us if we don't have christ living in us then we have no real genuine meaningful hope of salvation and churches ministers people who do not speak think and act as christ are of another spirit spirit of deception and antichrist and anytime we depart from that model we too become in a sense, opposed to Christ. And we need to repent and conform to what Christ would have us become. Now, Jesus Christ was obedient to the Father. He obeyed the laws of God. There are many scriptures where we are told that that's what Jesus did. Christ was without sin. Notice what Jesus said over in John 5, verse 30. John 5, verse 30. Jesus said, I can of myself do nothing as I hear I judge, and my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. He was obedient to God's will. Notice in John 8, verse 29, he said, He who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. And we might also go to Philippians chapter 2. And notice what it says there. It says in verse 5 of Philippians 2, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Notice we're to have the same mind as Christ that's what it means to confess Christ as we were reading about in the sense that's used in the Greek. Who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, because he was God, but made himself of no reputation, or as it could be translated, emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So he was absolutely obedient, even to the point of death. And he never sinned against God. He never transgressed God's law. Sin is the transgression of God's laws. and He never sinned. Now, if he did that in the flesh, then he will also be doing that in the flesh now. Because, as we read in Hebrews 10 and verse 8, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So, what do we find in 1 John 2 and verse 3? How can you know if Christ is really living in you? How would you know? How do you know that Christ is living in you? John wrote in 1 John 2, beginning with verse 3, he said, by this we know that we know him. This is how you can know. If we keep His commandments. How can you know that God is in you? How can you know that you really know God if you're keeping His commandments? He who says, I know Him, does not keep His commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps His word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. And by this, we know that we are in Him. He who says He abides in Him Ought Himself also to walk just as He walked. Christ dwelling in you empowers you to obey His law. You can't obey it without His help. But if you're yielding to Christ, if you're genuinely striving to overcome, He will give you the power and the help you need to succeed. You may not, you may stumble at times, you may fall down, have to get up again but you will continue to make progress. As long as we're in the flesh, we will have to contend with its sinful nature. But Christians who are really faithful to God do not reject God's commandments. They are not hostile to God's commandments. They don't try to reason around God's commandments. Rather, they hold fast to them and they struggle to obey them in the faith of Jesus. And as they grow spiritually, they exercise through Christ's power greater control over their minds and actions and become more like Him as they mature spiritually. When they sin, Christians who are truly faithful will, in heartfelt repentance, acknowledge their sin and sinfulness. And this is important, too. We need to acknowledge our sinfulness, our sinful nature. Cry out for God's help. And if we do that, we will be forgiven we will be cleansed of our sins. We can't of ourselves obey God's law, but Christ dwelling in us can. If we constantly submit to His will and earnestly seek His help to obey. So study God's word diligently and daily. Obey God. Obey His commandments. Let Christ live in you. Your hope of glory.